Assalamualaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. This is AB Dawji and this is the big picture broadcasting simultaneously on Radio Islam and Radio Al-Ansar. Ahlan wa sahlan and how's it? <laughs> how's it all you wonderful brazos and habibis out there? You know what? You, the listeners, make this program. Where will I be without you, hey? Where will I be without you? Maybe chilling on the beach in Zanzibar or watching the northern lights in Iceland or cruising down a canal in a gondola in Venice or slowly hiking up the mountain in Peru, South America to visit the spectacular ancient Inca city of Machu Picchu, one of the new seven wonders of the world, or lying flat out half dreamy on one of the fancy small boats, the Shikara, in the gentle waters of Dal Lake in Srinagar, Kashmir. Wow, how I wish I could travel, eh? I really want to travel. Anyway, I'm just kidding. I'd rather be with you instead of all these wonderful exotic destinations. You are number one, Habibi. Struz Bob, to use a very old expression. Okay, so let me start with something that I did, which I am thoroughly ashamed of. Mm? Yes, folks, very embarrassing indeed. Now, I don't know whether I should confess to you all about this very grave deed that I am guilty of. Too terrible, Mota, too terrible, completely disgraceful. Shall I tell you? No? Okay, let's leave it, okay? Salas. <laughs> yes, yes, I can see that you are very curious, eh? What an inquisitive lot. Ready for all kinds of panchat, ne? Okay, let me tell you. But first, let me ask you this. Listen carefully. How do you add people's names and phone numbers onto your cell phone? Do you actually save their full name or just the first name and some sort of description of that person. The reason why I'm asking you this is because someone sent me a list of names. Well, they're quite funny because uh, they have a name and a description of the person. Here is the list. Aisha Samusas. Imtiaz Drain Cleaner, Kausar Soft Puris, Hasina Expired Chocolate. <laughs> Hasina says expired chocolate. Adil Kabrestan, ooh, that's a very grave situation. That Adil, and uh, next to his name is the word Kabrestan. And here's uh, Abdullah. Chicken Molana. <laughs> Sadia. Uh, Fozia's neighbor. And I like this one. Auntie Fatima. Juveria's could be daddy in law. <laughs> Auntie Fatima. Juveria's could be daddy in, could be daddy in law. Well, you know what? I checked my phone and next to many first names, instead of the surname, I have a description of the person. Well, it's easier to remember, you know. There's one lady who cooks food. She's a caterer. 
and she caters from her home. So on my phone, I have, and I won't tell you her real name, I have Rashida Biryani. And it makes it so easy. On a Friday, I just search Biryani on my phone, and her name pops up. But if I put maybe Rashida Khan, then on Friday, I'll have to battle to remember her name. You just, you just put Biryani, and her name pops up. You get it? Anyway, one Bali I met at the Mall of Africa, he wanted to know about my last 10 days uh, Ramadan trip to Alaksa. I gave him my, uh, my number and said, call me and I'll send you the details. Next day he called me and said he is Feroz and I should WhatsApp, WhatsApp him the itinerary. I said, okay. And after I, I finished the call, I saw his number and saved it as Feroz T. Kurta. Why? Why? Because I saw a big patch at the mall. I saw him. He had a, a, a big, big, dirty brown patch on the front of his kurta. And assuming, I assumed that he fell there. And he called me after a few days and said, hey, bye. You didn't send the details. And I said, yes, I did. Then I took a screenshot of the WhatsApp message that I had sent to him. And only two seconds later, I realized with great horror that his name is shown on the screenshot that I sent to him. Horror, sweating, Firoz T. Kurta. <laughs> and he called back and he said, hey, who, what is this T. Kurta about? Well, I fumbled and, and, and stammered and said, uh, hey, hey, bro, you and I must meet for tea sometime, okay? Well, I sounded quite unconvincing, but he left it at there and said, yeah, 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 you must come to my party, okay? So that, dear listeners, was the embarrassing uh, episode that left me red-faced. It left me red-faced. Actually, it's hard to make out uh, when I'm red-faced with, uh, with embarrassment because I'm, uh, well, a little of the dark shade. Eh? <laughs> okay, let's leave all this frivolity. Nice word, that frivolity. I just checked it up this morning to use it to impress you. Frivolity, it means lack of, lack of seriousness. Uh, it's, all, it's about being lighthearted. So when the Bali is having lunch today and he says, darling, I like the pink dress you are wearing. You look like some lekker mitai. Just as his mouth is full of acne, hit him with this one. Hey, Gulu, leave this frivolity and tell me whether you decided to take me to Zuleika ba Zuleika's baby shower in Arismat. Yeah, that should get him choking on his chow and looking at you sideways for the rest of the day. So let's leave this frivolity and move on to weighty matters, serious issues. Last week I said that we should remember, um, that we should commemorate tragic milestones in the history of Muslims, especially what has happened in the recent past. And last week, I played you the interview I had on radio about 10 years ago about my visit to Al-Amariya, the bomb shelter where in 1991 the United States massacred innocent women and children. And if you missed it, send me a WhatsApp message and I'll send you a recording of that interview. My number is 082-352-3526. It's absolutely chilling, horrific brings tears to my eyes even today. So I mention it every year at that exact date, the anniversary of the event. So today I want to remember another terrible tragedy that occurred on this day, 25th of February, 
Baruch Goldstein, armed with two Khalil automatic weapons, these are, these are like a copy of the AK-47, he burst into the masjid and opened fire for 10 minutes. He killed 29 Palestinians and injured 125 others. The survivors grabbed him and they killed him. Of course, the world was horrified by this massacre, including many Israelis who condemned this action. But not all Israelis, not all Israelis regarded this as a murderous act. At the settlement of Kiryat Arba next to Hebron, Hebron we call, we are, is known to us as Al-Khalil, right? But we know it also as Hebron. At the settlement of Kiryat Arba next to Hebron, where Goldstein was, is buried in a well, very lovely park, is a tombstone which has the words, um, and I'm going to be reading from the Haaretz, the Israeli newspaper Haaretz. It says, the tombstone praises Goldstein as a martyr who gave his life for the Jewish people, its Torah and its land. He was blameless and upright. These are the words on the tombstone. The killer's grave has become over the years a pilgrimage site for extremist Jews who support him. And a shrine to his memory was set up next to his tomb. So they regard him as saint. Hmm? Many Israelis regard Goldstein as a saint who did the right thing. And one of them is now a cabinet minister in Netanyahu's government. His name is Itamar Ben-Gavir. Yeah, listen to this point. In a 1995 video clip, Ben-Gavir was dressed up for the Jewish holiday of Purim. Purim. And he was dressed up as Baruch Goldstein. And in this clip, Ben-Gavir celebrates the massacre. He celebrates the massacre. And he's heard saying in Hebrew uh, about Goldstein and the massacre, he is my hero. And he wears a sign also in the clip saying, blessed is the man who opens fire. For 25 years after the massacre, Ben Gavir kept a photograph of Goldstein hanging in the lounge of his home. Let me read from the website Electronic Intifada. It says, Nowadays, Ben Gavir is a lawyer who regularly defends settlers accused of violence, uh, violent attacks on Palestinians. He's also chairman of Otsma Yahudit, a party inspired by Meher Kahane, the late founder of the violent extremist Jewish Defense League, who advocated the mass ethnic cleansing of Palestinians. In 2019, Ben Ravir urged that any time a rocket is fired from Gaza, Israel should respond by killing 30 so-called terrorists in revenge. Hmm. Now, uh, let me see here. Hello? Okay. Here is more from the New Yorker magazine. Sorry, I think there was an interruption there. 
Here is something from the New York America. Ben Gavir has been Kach, that's Mel Kahane's uh, group, most visible ambassador. He has been the, the most visible ambassador. On his first date with his future wife, they visited the grave of Baruch Goldstein. So there you are, folks. Itamar Ben Gavir, a racist, who Netanyahu gave the post of Minister of National Security. Can you believe it? Here's what the New Yorker article says. As the new minister in charge of supervising Israel's police force, Ben Gavir oversees a special operations unit tasked with breaking up armed riots. For many Israelis, this is alarming. In one poll, 46% of respondents described him as unworthy of such a sensitive post. But Ben Gavir's performance in last year's election was strong enough that Netanyahu granted him an expanded portfolio, which includes broad responsibility for national security and authority over border patrol units in the West Bank, what uh, the departing defense minister, Benny Gantz, called a private army. And you know what? Here is the chilling part. In the latest election, according to one estimate, the election of uh, late last year, a third of all Israeli soldiers voted for Ben Gavir. Now, that is chilling. Eh? That is chilling. Uh, and and here's, a, here's a footnote. Here's a footnote. Uh, that Ben Gavir lives in the illegal settlement of Kiryat Arba, where the, the killer Baruch Goldstein is buried. So there you have it, folks. And let me say this, Netanyahu and the former defense minister, Abidor Lieberman, and many others have said that the Israeli army, that is the IDF, is the most moral army in the world. Wow, isn't that amazing? The Israeli defense force is the most moral army in the world. Well, you heard that one third of the soldiers vote for Ben Gavir, the racist who can be compared, well, to the a AWB. Remember them? Mm, the AWP. And so it is no wonder that since the uh, extreme right-wing racist government of Netanyahu took office, the killings of Palestinians has gone up to absolutely horrific levels. If you get information from Palestine that is not in the mainstream media, you will know what I'm talking about. Almost daily killings of young Palestinians and raids into Palestinians, which causes enormous destruction. It's absolute hell. Since the beginning of the year, 65 Palestinians, and uh, that's adults, and 11 children, and hundreds have been injured. Right? 65 Palestinians killed, 11 children, and hundreds injured. Uh, well, when you say injured, they lose their arm or leg or an eye or have some permanent damage. And, of course, you saw the massacre at Nablus a few days ago. Well, what more can I say on that? Okay, let me add this. I was totally taken aback by what the Vice President of the United States, uh, Kamala Harris, Kamala Harris, what she said last week. She said, <clears throat> in the case of Israel's actions against the Palestinians, we have examined the evidence, we know the legal standards, and there's no doubt... These are crimes, uh, crimes against humanity. 
And I say to all those who have perpetrated these crimes and their superiors who are complicit in these crimes, you will be held to account. Anthony Blinken, the U.S. Foreign Secretary, said that members of Israel's forces had committed execution-style killings of Palestinian men, women, and children, torture of civilians in detention, and so on. These acts are not random or spontaneous. They are part of Israel's widespread and systematic attack against the Palestinian civilian population. The UK Prime Minister Rishi Sunak told at a conference that holding Israel to account for its actions, we must see justice through the International Criminal Court for the sickening war crimes committed, whether in Jerusalem, Nablus, or beyond. <laughs> Isn't that amazing, eh? Isn't that amazing, I hear you say? I hear you say, about time too. Well, 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 I'm so sorry to burst your bubble. But these people were not speaking about Israel. They were referring to Russia's attack on Ukraine. I just changed the word uh, Ukraine and Russia and put in the Israel and the Palestinians. So sorry to give you some sense of hope there. So sorry. And let me say this clearly. All the so-called big powers have blood on their hands. Yes, all of them. And they all want to take, uh, want us to take sides in the wars that they commit for their own interests. I say, let's not get dragged into their bloody agendas. Yes, the war in Ukraine is terrible. But I, want, uh, I, I, I won't back America or Russia for that matter because both are known to have committed atrocities in the, in the past. So yes, I, I back the South African government position of neutrality on the issue Non-alignment is called. Uh, this is a very long story. I don't want to go into details here. And someone who is an expert on the subject of this Russia-Ukraine crisis is Professor David Monia. He is the Associate Professor of Political Science and International Relations and Director for the Center for Africa-China Studies at the University of Johannesburg. Professor Monia, welcome to the Big Picture program. Good morning, and to all your listeners. All right, uh, and thanks for your time, by the way. Let's get straight into it, Professor Monia. Yesterday was the one-year anniversary of the war in Ukraine. The, this crisis has been brewing long before the actual invasion of Ukraine by Russia. What is the background, in your view, to this issue? Um, I think the crisis, for anyone to fully understand, you have to go as far back as the end of the Cold War um, and the breakup of the former Soviet Union. The agreement then uh, with uh, uh, Gorbachev and later Boris Yeltsin uh, with Americans, uh, and and this was led by then uh, Secretary of State uh, uh, Becker, um, there was an understanding that NATO, one way or another, will come to an end because there won't be a need for such uh, a huge security uh, alliance against the then Soviet Union. Soviet Union had come to uh, stop to exist. Um, and therefore, I think there was the understanding was that these new independent uh, Balkan states that we call Balkans, these are former Soviet Union states uh, that broke away, um, 
in that entire former Soviet Union block, NATO won't uh, expand into that part of the world. Um, and specifically Ukraine, as a former Soviet Union state, um, it had to give up its nuclear weapons, and in return, it will get guarantees that it won't be um, in any under any harm, um, and it won't be part of uh, NATO and the like. So, but we have witnessed throughout the post Cold War era uh, that the United States did not live up to that promise um, through NATO. Uh, there has been massive expansion of NATO closer to now Russia um, and threatening uh, the existence of Russia uh, in one way or another. Um, any hope for Russia to join Europe, EU was dashed, and uh, the tensions continued with Russian-speaking uh, population in some of these countries across these former Soviet Union states. And particularly in Ukraine, um, the um, territories bordering um, Russia, um, most of them have um, Russian-speaking people, uh, including Crimea. And and with the United States entering directly uh, in 2014 with a coup, uh, that has triggered what we now have seen in return um, Russia um, seized Crimea, uh, and the rest is history that we all now face. So it has been a, a war long in making, uh, in a very gradual, but it won't end then. I think we have seen the role of NATO that is now playing a global role beyond its original uh, intention of securing Europe. We've seen it ourselves. We have the experience um, of NATO bombing Libya. Um, and now NATO is going to South China Sea. Uh, it is playing this major role in what we can see as the United States uh, reasserting its hegemony um, and really trying to uh, push other countries out of the way, particularly those who are on the rise, such as Russia and China. So uh, basically what you are saying is that America always had an agenda here using Ukraine as a pawn and perhaps to weaken Russia. No doubt about that. I think that's what we're seeing. And I think this had to do with the fear in the U.S. Um, One, um, there's this intention uh, and the desire to break Russia itself into much more fragmented and and weaken its um, power and for Russia to give up um, more than 6,000 nuclear warheads it has at the moment um, and also to have access to uh, mineral uh, resources. Russia is very rich in, in, in mineral resources and access to Black Sea, particularly in, uh, taking uh, Crimea that is critical for NATO uh, to really dominate that part. So that's one part. But there are also uh, intentions, part of the U.S., to ensure that um, Russia does not become too closely to China arising. So it doesn't want the this, the relationship between these powerful states. And finally, um, the uh, uh, move by the United States to ensure that Europe depends on U.S., uh, not China, not any other power uh, in terms of its energy, 
uh, is just generally uh, maintaining a post-1945 world order in which it has been the leader. Uh, does the dominance of the dollar also play a part in this, uh, in that perhaps there will be a move away if uh, Russia and China get together? There are a number of, I think there's fear on part of the United States and the, uh, the danger of this fear, uh, and we see with kind of threats not only to Russia and China, I think it's going all over the world in Latin America, in Asia, um, and here uh, in Africa, that um, all other countries should not be too close to a rising China uh, or to Russia. I think at the heart of it, there are a number of other developments at the global at the global level. We've seen Saudis, um, Saudi Arabia, uh, entering into a new agreement with China, in which, for the very first time uh, in the post-Cold War uh, era, uh, Saudi Arabia will be selling oil to uh, China uh, using the petrol yuan, not petrol dollar. Uh, so mm. that's one part. The rise of technologies, uh, particularly uh, the cryptocurrencies, particularly digital currencies in China and, and the relationship between China and Iran, um, China and Russia. Um, these are countries that are now starting to trade uh, outside the U.S., dollar. It also threatened the U.S. dollar. And, and with time, um, we're, we're going to see more countries, uh, even in Latin America, in Asia, uh, entering into agreement, uh, particularly Argentina, uh, to directly buy goods uh, from China using their own local currencies. So these changes are not good for the hegemon, for the dominance of the U.S. dollar uh, in the world, but quite a number of other issues. Uh, These are natural developments that are taking place, but uh, it's also a reaction to certain action taken by the United States in terms of weaponizing the dollar itself, um, uh, as well as the uh, weaponizing of other global public goods such as the SWIFT, when nations trade with each other, uh, the exchange, it goes through the SWIFT system, uh, and that is dominated by uh, United States and Western countries. And therefore, the sanctions that are being applied um, in a number of countries, whether it's Libya, it's Iran, um, um, Venezuela, they're all watching, North Korea, they're watching um, the manner in which uh, Western world, particularly United States, is abusing the system that they have built in the post-1945 world order, and therefore uh, most countries are finding alternative ways of uh, ensuring that their economies are not affected by these shenanigans. Right now, China released uh, its 12-point position on the crisis. Um, what is that all about? China has released two uh, documents. One paper is what they call the Global Security Initiative. Um, And this paper uh, follows what President Xi Jinping um, has argued uh, that for global peace and security to be maintained, we need um, uh, to use multilateral system where um, in uh, all countries collectively use 
are legitimate bodies such as United Nations um, to ease peace through negotiations. Uh, number two, we also need to empower developing countries to keep their own peace. Um, in this instance, uh, for instance, the AEU, uh, when it comes to peacekeeping on the African continent, that African troops need to be, one, trained, um, get the logistical uh, system, get support in terms of uh, operation uh, in peacekeeping, uh, having access to satellite, uh, to see and ears to see uh, what's happening on the ground so that they're able to effectively bring peace and security uh, on their own continent without depending on bigger powers intervening. So that paper goes on to discuss what needs to be done, which is different from uh, initiatives that are taken by Western world, uh, in which NATO is used, and it's used in a very destructive way. Uh, you remember what happened in Libya, what happened in Syria, uh, in Iraq, or in Afghanistan, where peace through bombing and destruction, um, destruction of the state uh, and infrastructure, uh, bringing in poverty and suffering. Uh, that's the difference between the, uh, these two uh, countries. Uh, and therefore, I think President Xi, in the context of Ukraine war, um, he uh, brought in a peace plan um, that argues for territorial integrity of Ukraine, uh, ensure that nuclear weapons are not used, um, uh, and and countries uh, withdraw from intervening, whether pouring in more weapons, as well as Russia removing its troops from that, and, and give peace a chance. Um, I think that's what the uh, peace plan that uh, President Xi Jinping and China are pushing in Ukraine as we speak. Uh, Professor, South Africa has uh, struck, uh, stuck to its position of non-alliance. It does not want to take sides on this issue. And the United States has been pressurizing many nations to join it in condemning Russia. Can South Africa afford to stand up to the United States? It's a very tricky uh, question. I think... For us to fully understand and appreciate what's happening, we have to go back to uh, the history of struggle against apartheid and colonialism across our continent. That uh, we really depended on quite a number of countries, such as China and Russia, at a time where we'd never had anyone helping us in terms of uh, liberation, freedom, and the like. In later years, uh, towards... Um, uh, 1994, I think we gained more uh, support, including in the United States, but not from the state, but from civil society, uh, Black Caucus in Congress. We gained support from civil society on the ground, pro-human rights people, leading to sanctions against apartheid. However, uh, in the post-1994, South Africa wanted a foreign policy that is human rights-centered, uh, one in which the country is independent, does not really depend on the Western world, nor the Eastern, uh, so-called Eastern world that is on the rise of China, Russia, uh, and independent and uh, argue for the development of the continent and a peaceful world order. I think that's what South Africa um, is arguing for. 
the utilization of multilateral structures, strengthening of the UN, ensuring that the African continent has representation in the UN, including UN agencies, um, a order in which um, a world order which is democratic uh, and allows all voices in the world um, to be heard. So as, as it stands, we don't have that. So uh, I think for us to get that is to ensure that we don't get involved in other people's wars. Uh, that does not mean, and I have to be clear here, does not mean that we are anti-United States. As a matter of fact, we have so much in common with the United States. We follow same liberal democracy, constitution, human rights. Uh, we have a huge diaspora in America, the African-Americans, and our relationship in terms of investment by United States in South Africa is quite huge. And therefore, I think United States is as important as China and Russia to South Africa. And what kind of pressure has the United States been putting on South Africa recently? Um, I think that, uh, rhetorically we have had a number uh, of statements uh, from senior government uh, officials. Uh, we had the um, Secretary of State. Uh, we had a visit to South Africa. We had Yellen, um, head of uh, U.S. Uh, Treasury, uh, visiting. And we've been receiving quite high-level uh, U.S. A government official for the very first time um, um, in recent days. I think Africa is starting to receive this high-level visit from the U.S. But, but uh, this is good news. However, I think what is disturbing is that the intention of this visit is not just for South Africa-U.S. relation. It's much more uh, asking South Africa and most of African continent to push out uh, Russia and push out China and, and and have U.S. dominance uh, maintained and Western country uh, dominance in relation uh, maintained. So th- that's uh, the worry that some of us have, but we don't have to be told by United States and supervised in terms of who should be our friends and who should be our enemies. Hello? Hello? Yes, um well, listeners, that's uh, Professor David uh, Monia. He is the Associate Professor of Political Science and International Relations and Director for the Center for Africa-China uh, Studies at the University of Johannesburg. Uh, Professor Monia, thank you very much for your time and your insight into the uh, Ukraine-Russia uh, crisis. And uh, I wish you a great day. Thank you. Thank you very much. Now... Uh, let me finish off by playing a clip about how wonderful the United States has been in upholding human rights, human rights uh, and international law in the world. Uh, but I'll just finish off. Well, I don't have much light at the end of the tunnel with load shedding and all of that. So I'm going to go to the graveyard of light at the end of the tunnel and dig up one old one, which I've, I think I mentioned it quite a few times, few times. A drunk man who smelled like cheap wine sat down on a subway seat next to a priest. The man's tie was stained, his face was plastered with red lipstick and a half-empty bottle of gin booze was sticking out of his torn coat pocket. He opened his newspaper and began reading. After a few minutes, the man turned to the priest and asked, 
say, Father, what causes arthritis? And uh, so the, 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 the priest said, My son, it's caused by loose living, being with cheap, wicked women, too much alcohol, and contempt for your fellow man. And then the drunk muttered something, and he said, Well, I'll be gobsmacked. And he returned to his paper. And the priest thinking about it, and he was felt a bit guilty, and he nudged the man, and he apologized. I'm very sorry, uh, young man. I didn't mean to come on so strong. How long have you had arthritis? And the man replied, I don't have it, Father. I was just reading here that the Pope does. <laughs> uh, we're going to play the clip now. This is A.B. Daudi bidding you all. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.